1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. In spring of 2018, I met today's guest at a conference at Princeton in New Jersey. John Swinton was presenting on theology and mental health and traumatic injury. The conference was great, and Swinton's presentation was one of my favorite sessions. After attending the seminar, I read one of Swinton's books, this one called Becoming Friends of Time. The book brings together considerations of mental health, disability, vocation, and theology. I loved it because while helpfully addressing particular concerns and issues, it offered a general, thoughtful, and hopeful way of understanding theology and faith. We often can't keep up in this life. We're weighed down by a compulsive cheerfulness and by the incessant and unattainable goals of happiness, comfort, and security. As John Swinton compassionately and insightfully writes and speaks about some of the most difficult mental health matters, he shows us all a way to breathe, to rest, to be grateful, to love one another. His faith is evident and engaging, and it draws people together rather than apart. John Swinton has a new book out. It's called Finding Jesus in the Storm, and it addresses what it means to have faith while living with diagnosed mental illness. So much of what Swinton says can inform us about the reality of those things of our lives that we find painful. He speaks about how insisting on healing can become deeply oppressive to those who desire to live well with their disability. He calls for something better than inclusion, Working from a theological understanding, he outlines how we all have vocation to bear witness to the goodness and love of God. He shows us how we can do this even in our pain, and how people who are too often in our world considered unfortunate or disabled have this worthy vocation as well. Success can be so narrowly defined, and in Swinton's writing, we can see the value and beauty of slowness, gentleness, dependence, vulnerability, uncompetitiveness, trustfulness, and restfulness. A heads up that this episode mentions schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, and suicide. Well, we're very pleased to welcome our guest today, Professor John Swinton. He is Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's also the founding director of Aberdeen Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. John worked for a, as a nurse for 16 years in the fields of mental health and learning disabilities, and also later as a community mental health chaplain. Glad to have John here. Uh, Part of our conversation here is to kind of advertise and promote a couple of courses uh, coming up in Vancouver in July. One is at Regent College, and that one course is called Dementia, Living in the Memories of God. And the course at the Vancouver, Vancouver School of Theology, also in July, is Living Faithfully with Mental Health Challenges, Why Theology Matters. There's one more title. There's an evening lecture 
uh, at through, I think that's through VST, called yes. The Hidden Side Effects of COVID-19, Racial Inequality, Toxic Politics, Loneliness, and the Need for a Spirituality of Lamentation. So you can go to regent-college.edu, VST, or vst.edu and find up or find out how to sign up for those courses or the evening lecture. Uh, one of the you know good things about a terribly unfortunate circumstance with COVID is that uh, it's easier for people to take courses even locally sometimes. So you can sign up there because these courses are being done remotely. They're in July, so they're kind of among the last. I think the of Regent that. one is in May, actually. Oh, is Regent in May? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So okay, so Regent in May. <laughs> And, and uh, VST, thank you for, for that correction. So, John, with that big introduction, welcome. Thank you welcome. for joining us. <laughs> yeah, thank you for inviting me. And all the way from Aberdeen. Indeed. But we're going to get you to Vancouver again soon. I know you've oh, been hopefully. here once. <laughs> I love Aberdeen. Yeah, I like Vancouver. It's a beautiful city. But yeah. so is Aberdeen, of course. Okay, well, we'll go there, too. Or, yeah, I was going to say, I have no problem <laughs> coming your way, John. Uh, so, uh, just off the top, tell us about yourself and how your interests and your work have led you to what you're doing now. Well, at the moment, I am professor in practical theology at uh, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, UK. And I've been here forever. I just worked out the day. I've been here for 22 years. Wow. Like, I'm, I'm the old school. Like, <laughs> all the youngsters have been and gone. But, so, so I've been here. My background's in nursing. I nursed for 16 years or so, uh, originally in the area of mental health. And then I retrained and worked in the area of what we call learning disabilities, but I think it's called intellectual disabilities in different places. Um, and I really enjoyed that. So I worked up for, for 16 years and then I uh, left there to go to university. So I decided that I wanted to be a hospital chaplain. My father's a mm -hmm. hospital chaplain or was a hospital chaplain. Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that the hospital chaplain say runs in your family or runs <laughs> in your genes. But it just happens. That I thought it was a good idea. But as soon as I got to um, university, I knew that I wanted to uh, teach practical theology and research right. in practical theology. So I, I finished my degrees and had a year in Glasgow, which was good. And then I've been here ever since. And that's a, a potted history of the past <laughs> 30 or 40 years or whatever it is. Oh, my goodness, John. Well, I mean, that, that, that's in some ways, I think, on, on the surface, like that's quite a stark and like shift in vocationally but I mean I think from from our engagement with your work I I see that trajectory like how how you've kind of gotten from A to B and why that that has happened um as uh as somebody who has such extensive um experience and and academic like research and in, in in the area specifically of mental health and spirituality i'd love if you could tell us your thoughts on um mental health and the church specifically like how how has stigma shown up in the context of the church and how maybe you've you've engaged mental health um in in that sort of institutional uh capacity well i mean the, the church is part of society so to some extent, whatever society thinks and believes and constructs things to be, people in the church should be think similarly. Like, mm. so if, if society has particularly negative views of mental health, the church chances are that will be transcribed or transformed in a different form into the church. So, uh, you know, we're all just citizens of the same 
kind of mm -hmm. cities and they have the same problems. Mm -hmm. And you can see that very clearly. I mean, one of the, the big problems for people with mental health challenges is the issue of stigma. I mean, it, 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 obviously, whatever uh, 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 experience you're going through is difficult enough in itself without this extra layer mm -hmm. of depersonalization. Now think about it, Stigma, stigmatization, stigma, the idea of stigma comes from the Greek slave trade where a slave would be bought and then a mark would be put on this slave and the person would be reduced to the size of that mark, right? So you, you're no longer a person, you no longer have a name, no longer have a family or community, you're just owned by this person the same way you'd own a bike or a bicycle or whatever it is. Mm. And, and stigma works that way. So people have caricatured understandings of what a mental health diagnosis is. So for example, people talk about schizophrenics. You know, as if mm -hmm. the same thing as Martians or aliens, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, what on earth would that be? But then you get that persona, and then you get a whole kind of social structure placed upon that of, of danger, of violence, mm -hmm. of split personality, all of which is untrue. But that's the kind of caricature that people have. And so, as soon as you encounter somebody, that's all you see. Yeah. All you see is what you think the diagnosis is telling you, and what you've been told by society or the media is the issue. And so all of us are prone to that, like, but that's what stigmatization does. Then it takes away your personhood in that sense, and then it alienates you from, from community. Yeah. Take that inside the, the context of the church, and people tend to do the same thing. Right. Uh, so, but so you maybe use slightly different language. So you maybe say things, you say things like, you know, if you prayed a little bit harder, yeah. Yeah. then you wouldn't be depressed. The implication being it's actually your fault. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Christians don't get mental health problems. The implication being that they're for other people. All these things begin to happen, and then you get into the issue of the demonic and all that, that kind of things. And so you get a kind of spiritualization of the stigma that is so prevalent within society. Um, and unless we're aware of that, then it just feels normal. It just feels like that's mm -hmm. a normal way for us to explain these experiences. Um, but once you become aware of it and you're aware of the problems with it, then you begin to see that mm. it's a new problem inside and outside of the church. You mentioned uh, their diagnosis. And in, in this book, Finding Jesus in the Storm, um, you have a fairly extensive uh, conversation on, on diagnosis and the kind of the blessing, but also the curse of, of, of yeah. diagnosis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, unlike certain physical health diagnosis, mental health diagnosis are sticky. Now, what I mean by that is that once you have a diagnosis of something like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, it's very difficult to, to get rid of that. So that's, that becomes a way that people identify it. So if you have influenza, you don't become the flu. You know, people don't say, oh, you're the flu. But if you have some, uh, some mental health challenges, you become that thing. So it becomes part of your, your, your body, part of the way you think. And so diagnosis uh, can, can be a way of marking people out as different in a negative sense. Now, I want to be clear, uh, I'm not in any sense suggesting that there's a problem with diagnosis right. when it's used in the proper context. So for the mental health professions, to enable, to enable them to do their, their healing tasks, and I, I think it's very important because it's a very important aspect of mental health care. Diagnosis is necessary because it helps them to, people to understand certain things and to get particular treatments. But when it, that leaks out into society with people like you and I who are right. not clinicians, then that's when the problem is. Oh. And the diagnosis takes on a, a life of its own. You can see that also in, in physicalness. For example, something like um, AIDS. You know, AIDS right. is a virus, 
it's nothing more or nothing less than that. But once it gets into the mm. into society, all these connotations and metaphors of deviance, of homosexuality, of drug taking, of that, da, 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 da. so the, what is actually a virus becomes something huge, which is profoundly destructive for an individual yeah. who, who has that diagnosis. And that happens quite regularly in the mental health context. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, section in, in, um, in this book, Finding Jesus in the Storm. The, the book that I'm most familiar with that I've read like a few times <laughs> and, um, is a book that you wrote, I think it came out in 2016, called Becoming Friends of Time. And um, when I summarize this book for people, I say that the book argues that uh, the purpose of time is not productivity, but but rather love. Uh, that's a, a very basic sum, <laughs> summary. That's a good, that's but a summary. Um, in that book, uh, you talk about people who have been called disabled, thought of as unfortunate or something, uh, or people with mental health uh, challenges as having vocation, um, you know, more than uh, inclusion or something like that. Um, yeah. Tell us about that in your work as you've met people and understood this vocational call for people that are sometimes forgotten or left behind. Yeah, I mean, it, it, all disciples have a vocation, a calling from God to, to, to do something. So part of your process of conversion is beginning to realize who you belong to and realize that you have a vocation. And that's the case, the case across the board. Across the board. Uh, uh, but sometimes people forget that that doesn't change when you encounter mental health challenges. It doesn't change when you encounter brain damage or dementia. You still have a vocation and a calling. And the question is, uh, how do you work that out? Mm. Now, one of the most startling things for me in the Gospels is the way in which in John's Gospel, Jesus says to, to, this, to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And so with that movement, uh, the nature of discipleship becomes friendship. In other words, it's, it's not something that's kind of exclusive or esoteric, it's friendship. It's Christ-like friendship where we come together for the purposes of love. And within that friendship, we begin to discover and encounter what our vocation is, what our calling is mm. at all periods of our lives. Um, one of the problems for, if you take something like dementia one of the problems that we have is the way that we frame it so we oftentimes frame it in terms of christian ethics maybe trying to work out certain dilemmas about is this a person or not a person or pastoral care everybody needs pastoral care so there's nothing wrong with yeah. that <laughs> but it's much better to it's much more challenging to to frame it in terms of discipleship what does it mean to be 94 years old to have some significant brain damage than still to be called by god to be a friend of jesus and to have a vocation and a calling. And what do you have to do as an individual and as a community to facilitate that calling? And I think when you think in that way, then you begin to realize that it's not enough just to include people right. within your community. You really have to find out what it means to be with them in, in realistic ways. And I always use that, that tension between inclusion and belonging. So inclusion is, a, if you like, it's a legal term. You've got to, to, to have, make your your church or your whatever you are accessible so that everybody can have access to it. But you don't have to love people. 
But belonging means you've really got to care for them, which means you've got to come close, which means you're asking a different set of questions for people. And that vocational question, I think, is fundamentally important for change, not only for enabling the person to fulfill their vocation, but also for changing the way that other people perceive them. Yes. You're not a waste of time. Yes. You're not a waste yeah. of space. You have a vocation. Yeah. No, no, I think that that's very, that's very interesting, John. And that's very, um, I don't know, I, I feel like, like like you said, it's it's much more challenging if you choose to to approach community in that uh, in that way. It, it puts a lot more onus on well on caring for each other and deeply caring for each other. And yeah, I was thinking yeah. as you were speaking, I'm like, this goes way beyond just like a, a tolerance or an inclusion. Like there, it, it's so much more foundational than it's that. It's beautiful too, though. Oh yeah, no. Um, yeah. It, it's kind of like what Jesus did. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's why it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Maybe but that's we shouldn't why. be surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, but it, it, I think in, in a lot of people's um, experiences with, with churches that they haven't necessarily felt that sort of depth of connection. No, that's right. Um, that they have felt like a burden. They have felt like, well, if I'm not contributing, then then what's my purpose? And And yeah. I think that that there there definitely is is space and and I see so much value in in your work for calling for a reexamination of how we just fundamentally function as a society as as, as faith communities um because yeah it, it's it's understanding that everybody not not just has a right to be in some place but has a has a right to to be included and you 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 talk about the concept of abundant life um, in in your work, um, and can you can you tell us a bit about how we can better understand that? Because I feel like I have one concept of it, but I'm pretty sure it's probably well, not as good as what well, you, because you the say. Because the way the way you speak about it is so far from something like prosperity gospel, yeah, which yeah. is which is huge right now, right? Well, two 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 things I would say, and for you, Alison, it's not something you can get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's learning all the time. So I have, a, I have a position, but your position is probably as good. But the two ways I would think about it, uh, in terms of abundant life, I would think of the kind of biblical idea of shalom. Mm. So shalom is, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't think about health in the way that we do, which is you, you've got to get rid of every, every ailment in order to be healthy. It's things more in terms of shalom as a, you're healthy when you're in, in right relationship with God. You know, when, when you, that irrespective of what your physical or psychological state is, if you can just find a way of holding on to God or if others can help hold on to God for you, sometimes that, you know, you can't do it yourself, other people are going to do it for you, then you're healthy. Yeah. So you can be healthy when you're at the end of your life and dying of cancer because you, you, this, this theological dynamic holds you in that space of, of wholeness. And you can be healthy in the midst of serious mental health challenges. You can be healthy in the midst of serious physical challenges. Mm -hmm. So abundant life, I think, is being with Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus means when, when he, talk, he talks about life and all of its fullness is, is like being with me. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I think that is, isn't it? But, and and uh, the, the pastoral ta task really then is uh, not simply to get rid of illness, because sometimes mm -hmm. very often you can't. So if you have enduring bipolar disorder, you can't get rid of it. And, and does that mean you're ill all your life? Of course it doesn't. But it doesn't, according to one model, but it doesn't if you think about it in that more holistic biblical way 
Um, so mm. the abundant life runs like that. But there's a second dimension to abundant life, I think, is, is, is really interesting. That's kind of nestled in, in, the, in the doctrine of creation in the, or in the story of creation in Genesis, where you've got, you know, two different creation stories. One that God creates the world and tells um, Adam of human beings to hold it in its place, to, get, to have dominion over it. And that's a really hard word in the Hebrew. But then you get the second creation, then uh, that, that story, where God says, well, the earth is yours. Go and care for it. Look after it. Mm-hmm. Be with one another. Uh, in other words, a primal responsibility of human beings written into the dynamic of creation is, is to care for one another. Mm-hmm. So to be human is to care. And the necessary corollary of that is to be human is to be cared for. So mm-hmm. even when you come to that time in your life where all you can do is be cared for by other for you're t- completely dependent you don't lose your dignity you don't lose your value you actually discover an aspect of being human that very often is forgotten in, in a kind of society with others which is very individualistic and very um, productivity oriented in that sense and so part of your vocation if you're in that kind of situation where you're, mil- you're helpless in that sense depending on other people is to reveal that really fundamentally important dimension of being human. Because sometimes your vocation is to do nothing and allow that mm-hmm. nothing to challenge people to see things differently. So that caring dynamic, I think, is very important for uh, the idea of, of life and all of its fullness. So these, these two things, I think. It, it takes take the, There's so much pressure in... in so not, not even talking about life and, and faith in this regard, but more what people would call secular or something, whatever that means. The pressure to be okay, the pressure to be mm-hmm. happy, the pressure to be successful, the yeah. pressure to be healthy. The pre- I mean, obviously, it just presses upon people right now. In the church, in many parts, some parts of, of the church, uh, there can be this emphasis on healing, like physical healing. As, as something that kind of shows the, the, pr- the presence of God or the blessing of God on a life. In, in an essay that I read um, uh, that was in a book of a collection of essays that you wrote on the Bible and mental health, uh, you mentioned that the insistence on healing can become oppressive. Uh, that I, I really liked hearing that. I've, I've experienced that in, in church settings where people have been treated as like if they had, you re- not only if you had enough faith you'd be healed, but even kind of more insidious I think was the healing was always the goal. Um, so there might be excuses for why people, you know, people don't experience healing, but it still was like, it's the goal. So what do you mean when you say the insistence on healing can be oppressive? Well, I, it's like the insistence of being happy can be oppressive. Yeah. Um, when you, if you create happiness with faithfulness, and very often we do that, and if you listen to, listen to the kind of worship songs we do, there's not many of them that are <laughs> sad. And even the sad ones, we, we raise our fists and, and battle the devil. Yeah. And the <laughs> so, true. You know? so it's like the Psalms of Lament never existed. Um, but what I mean, what I mean by, by that is that the, the pressure to be cured uh, it can be uh, unbearable for people who have to live with uh, enduring mental health ch- or physical challenges. And I think there is a, a difference between curing and healing. So curing is the obvious thing that we think about. So you, uh, you know, we've got a highly medicalized society, so therefore we have this idea that to be well is to be cured of the thing that's, that's, that's damaging us. Yeah. 
But it seems to me that when you look at the Gospels, there's, there's two things that, you, that I always notice. First thing is that um, the Gospel stories are not medical stories. Yeah. They're stories that are designed to reveal something of Jesus. You know, Jesus forgives sins. Uh, and Jesus heals brokenness and so on and so forth. Telling you something about Jesus, I mean, obviously it's lovely to be healed of, 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 of something that's really unpleasant. But it's really telling you who can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Who is Jesus? And so you've got that dynamic. But you've also got that dynamic of, of healing and curing. So if you take the example of the woman with a discharge of, of blood, right? So right. she reaches through the crowd and touches Jesus' cloak. And immediately she's cured. Right? She's had this thing for years and she has it no more. But then she has this conversation with Jesus and begins to work out who Jesus is. And when she's leaving, Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And you're thinking, but she's already yeah. been healed. Clearly, <laughs> that's not the case. Her healing came when she discovered who Jesus was in that way. Hmm. Uh, so, so I think that if we take that kind of understanding of healing, that is not determined by simply getting rid of something, but it's actually determined by gaining something, i.e. relationship with God, relationship with Jesus, yeah. then that opens up a real whole new set of possibilities for all of us, but also particularly for people who are, may well have to live with their experiences, physical or psychological, for all of their lives. So how do you, like, I, I, it's such a, again, there's such beauty in the, in the answer and, and faith. Um, in, as working as a, a nurse and in the mental health care field, um, many of those relationships are across lines of faith. Or so you're you're carrying what you just said, but speaking to somebody who might not share that that same belief. Yeah. How how did you do that just personally in your own faith and and work? Well, the thing is to to begin to recognize, you know, what to say at the beginning of John's Gospel when John says, you know, the light of uh, God is given to all people. Yeah. So in other words, there's something beautiful and and godly about everybody. Uh, and okay, so we mess it up, but yeah. it's, all, it's it's still there. And of course it needs to be developed and all these things, it's still there. So learning to to look at people, so when, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, actually thinking what that looks like to have a, a gaze, a way of looking at one another that, that reflects loving your, your neighbor. You know, Paul talks in, in Corinthians, and I can't remember the verse now, about, uh, He's talking to his congregation. You've been a letter of love from Jesus. Like, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. That when somebody sees you, they should be able to see Jesus. They should be able to read Jesus into your life. And I think that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. you, you, people are always just people yeah. uh, at that level. And, and I think that's the beginning point for all sorts of interesting conversations that can have all sorts of interesting outcomes. But if you can't begin that conversation by simply respecting another person, then yeah. there is no conversation to yeah. be had. And you probably misunderstood the gospel in, in, uh, if, yeah. if you can't actually do that. <laughs> I think there's... Yeah, yeah I, I have uh, inklings that things have been misunderstood. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested in, in maybe going back a little bit. I hope I'm not being too redundant about it. But um, uh, speaking a bit more about... <sighs> how how you reframe the concept of 
of time, uh, specifically thinking of your, your book, Becoming Friends of Time. And I know that coming out of the, the pandemic, like nobody knows exactly what's going to stick, what's not going to stick, but no. I'm, I think that it's probably safe to say that there will be kind of societal shifts in things. Um, and do you anticipate that there will be a shift in how we consider time? after the pandemic? Because I know, like, for me, I'm like, where did the last year go? But also, how has the last year been 10 years? And what has been valuable in that? Um, what are your thoughts about time post-pandemic? Well, I think it's difficult to say, because I think time might become quite profoundly difficult for people, because I think one of the consequences of the pandemic is going to be mass unemployment. Mm. So people are going to have a lot of time. I mean, one of the problems with, it, with the, the lockdown is that people have got too much time on their hands. Mm. And so people like me, who have a tendency to think too much, are <laughs> trapped in your house and then trapped <laughs> inside your own head yeah. with the same thoughts going round and round and round and round with nowhere to to go. <clears throat> and so that's never a healthy thing. So having too much time without any kind of focus uh, I think is, is is a problem in lockdown, but it's also going to be a, a big problem later on. The question is, how can we, and uh, we here being uh, Christian communities, how, how can we enable people in these difficult times to to go back to the toss point, to, to find their vocation, to yeah. use their time effectively, even though that may be very, very difficult. And how can we, we here, being those of us who are perhaps more prosperous, those of us who don't mm -hmm. lose our jobs, how can we use our time and our money to uh, look after our communities in a situation of, of impending crisis, both in terms of finances and in terms of mental health? So I think the, the post-pandemic raises a number of really important questions about what we all should do <clears throat> with our time and, and, you uh, think, and what that is for you think too, like, I know there's been a number of articles in the press in the UK. There's certainly been here in North America on people's um, fears coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. Some people, some people who've said that they've done better during the pandemic, I don't just mean financially, but more in terms of mental health or because oh, yeah. they found it too fast before. And they've been, you know, they have everything from That's not right. having to commute to, um, and I think one of the things people are fearing is, you know, will, what will the pace be like? And of course, we're going to see people like social media is going to be full of people's vacations and accomplishments and whatever. And you write in Becoming Friends of Time that time, so pre-pandemic, that time has become a commodity to be bought and sold rather than a gift to be received, cherished and valued. Um, and I think those challenges, obviously, as you've said, will be present coming out of the pandemic. Um, yeah. In the same book, though, and this is part back to that vocation of people who would sometimes be forgotten or considered, you know, uh, not, a, that's a terrible word to say, but like useful or, um, you talk about people who can teach us through their lives uh, about God's time. And you say, including slowness, gentleness, dependence, vulnerability, uncompetitiveness. It's a great word. Trustfulness, <laughs> restfulness, and so forth. <laughs> I mean, well, just uncompetitive. Like everything is so competitive right now, right? Um, are are you hopeful in some of this regard? Do you see that we might learn some of those some of those lessons about the value of the slower things? <laughs> I'm I'm in two minds about it. Whether yeah. we'll, I mean, certainly we could do, but I'm right. not sure whether we will do. And I'm yeah. thinking, I, I, I'm thinking here about 
for example, Zoom church. Mm. Uh, one of the interests, I mean, everybody's complaining about Zoom church, or maybe, maybe you guys are a bit over here, everybody's complaining mm. about Zoom church, it's not real church, and they can't wait to get back into the building. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's fair, fair, I understand why that is. But if you, I've spoken to some people who live with uh, autism, some people who live with dementia, and some elderly people, like my mom, who's 96, for whom Zoom church has been a real blessing. Yeah. yeah. Because there's no distractions, there's not people talking around me, there's no expectations. You can actually almost you can step away from it anytime you want, and it's a way in which you can worship in a way that they can, people can be included in a way that they, they simply yeah. aren't under this different circumstances. For people like my mum, who are not, is now incapacitated and couldn't really get to church, and even she did, she did, she, she, she had difficulty sitting for any length of time. It's been great for them. Yeah. But all of the talk is about we must get back to yeah. the building. So if we all get back to the building, what's the point? That means you leave behind yeah. those people who, for that brief moment in time, have been included. Those people who are slightly slower in the way that they think and process things, the way that things that they want. Uh, people who, who do need time to to be able to process things or to think things or to take time out or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. You leave them all behind uh, and you go back to, to worshipping with people who actually, you know, uh, function very well within that environment, but didn't function well within the old environment. So you, you leave behind the marginalised yeah. and go back and, and, and do what's best for the majority of right. able people. And that's 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 a concern. The, the underlying, uh, the bigger concern there is that I suspect people might not even notice they're doing that. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for for right. a level of, and, and I, I mean, I, I I mean this graciously, like a level of of ignorance that you know my experience has been that it's been really difficult, and so therefore we should definitely Oops. be going back um, into the physical building and stuff. But I I even recall thinking about when when we were doing like physical church and there would be people that they they would move into into some sort of like long-term care facility or something and then we wouldn't really see them anymore and I'm like oh well they could actually connect with zoom they could like someone could put an ipad with them and and then they could see people that they've been worshiping with for decades um and and I think that that there is something to be said for although I I can be um compassionate for for people wanting to be physically present with people i think we all <laughs> understand yeah. like wanting to actually see people but to understand that for some people this has actually been don't, such a big blessing don't you guys kind of find it curious that there's all this talk about people desperately wanting to go to the church building i've never heard that in my <laughs> life before <laughs> like i don't know where <laughs> do you know what i mean like there's some people i've been a pastor for 25 years and i never where heard it. these people like, I don't know what you think about that, John. It's not so much on the on our topics at hand, but I've noticed here as someone who was a pastor for many years, and so I still uh, am friends with a number of local ministers and pastors, and there's a, there's a, there's a fear among mm-hmm. church leaders right now as to, like, what's going to happen are when things... Are people coming back? Are people coming back? That's it. That's I mean, I don't know real... what it's like over there or how, what kind of... No, it's the same. It's the same here. And it's, it's, a, it's a very real fear. It's well grounded because... Church going is a habit, and yeah. if you break the habit for long enough, then it's, it's difficult for people to go to to go out. And what I'm noticing here is that a lot of the churches, the, the, the mainstream churches, are suffering 
quite significantly financially because mm. part of giving is being part of the community, which means being physically part of that. Yeah. And so many people have, have just held back. What's okay? We'll, we'll give money when, we, when, the, when the church starts up again. Someone stopped for the pandemic and then comes back again. Like, yeah, so. that's the uncertainty. No, yeah, it, 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 it is. Yeah. Um, in your new book, uh, Finding Jesus in the Storm, you, you speak um, about specifically um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and severe depression, and you talk about that there can be a healthy consideration of the concept of hearing voices. Um, and that's, that's very interesting for me because I, I think that as somebody with, with very minimal understanding of, of mental health, that there's always been a negative connotation to that for, for me, at least in my understanding. And so I, I find that really interesting. Although I do find it funny that in, in a church context, people will, will very uh, confidently say that they can audibly hear God. And there's always positive connotation with that. Or even just that God told me God this. told me yeah, this and yeah. I heard him say this, but um, in, in the concepts that you speak about, could, could you tell us a bit about the positive aspects for, for hearing voices? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll begin with the, 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 your last comment, if that's okay, about Christians hearing voices. First, first thing to notice is that uh, there's a significant uh, amount of the population, the, the non-psychiatric population, that is people not in full-time or not in, under mental health care, that hear voices. Something between, depending on what studies you look at, 5 or 18%. Of non-psychiatric population hear voices. People hear voices all the time. Mm. You know, Jesus heard voices. Buddhists heard voices. Churchill had heard voices. Martin Luther King had yeah. heard voices. It's not particularly mm. unusual. What the the, uh, the the key is how people manage them. Mm. So it's when they cause distress the oh. that it, it becomes a problem. But when people can manage them, as many many people do, then it begins to uh, then it's not the same kind of issue. Um. But there's a really interesting book by a, a, a Stanford anthropologist called Tanya Lerman. It's called When God Speaks Back. And so it's an ethnography of the vineyard communities in the, in the United States. Wow. And she is really fascinated by the question you, you just raised. Is how is, what, what does it mean when Christians say that they hear the voice of God? Yeah. So, so she does this extensive study. But basically she discovers that Christians develop an alternative theory of mind, right? Mm -hmm. So normally within a Western situation, our mind is something that goes on within our cranium, right? So you don't normally have external thoughts coming out and then belong to somebody else or alien thoughts. Usually it's your own thoughts in there. But through spiritual practices and through prayer and through the Ignatian uh, exercise in particular, he says, Christians train themselves to discern that some voices are from God mm. and some voices are, are their own. And so that's the way that it works. But to do that, they have to have a, have a different theory of mind. And then she goes on, not in the same book, but in other pieces of research, she looks at uh, the issue of hearing voices. And she notices that across cultures, people have very different experiences of hearing voices. So. If you hear a voice in, I don't know, downtown LA is the example she used, where suddenly a, a, a random voice comes into your head, it's terrifying. 
Why is it terrifying? Partly because of what the, the, the person has been, is, is, the voice is saying, mm. but partly because that's not what happens. That's not how your mind works. Yeah. But if you go across cultures, if you can, she, she takes the example of Accra uh, uh, and, uh, and, and Ghana and Chennai and India, and she says they have a different theory of mind and they have a different experience of voices. Mm. And so they're used to the idea that the mind is open as part of the community, that the ancestors speak to you or, or, or and that mm. these things are quite normal. And the kinds of voices that people get in these contexts are quite different. So you'll get your dead auntie teasing you about something you did when you were five or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes people get nasty voices, of course they do. But that's different emphasis and it's different experience because they're not terrified by the experience yeah. of coming of voices coming in. it's actually a different kind of culture different way of looking at things and so there's something about the way that we frame the mind and the way that we, we assume certain things within western culture that makes the experience of voice hearing particularly difficult in certain circumstances but not in all circumstances the you mentioned how in, in um lerman's work how um in many christian settings and in the ones that she was working within there's a distinction between you know okay this is the voice of god and this is my own voice or this is that brings up a theological question because if people have been what what i would consider people have been taught what i would consider bad theology a really condemning kind of theology or something right that um we know that many of the voices that people hear particularly in this context in the west um those can include voices of condemnation you, you write about that in, in this book you know voices that that were really really condemning voices uh i have a quote that says day and night it tells me how bad i am it tells me to kill myself and things like that how what have you experienced or seen as the connection between theological teaching and and kind of how those voices have have come up for people I, I, I can't claim to have had any experiences as directly as that. I mean, what I do, I mean, if it's well known, is that the content of people's voices and the contents of people's delusions very often comes from culture. So therefore, yeah. if you, I imagine, if you're in a, a situation where you're incessantly getting negative teaching, you mm -hmm. may incorporate that into your delusional activity or you may incorporate that into your uh, voice hearing. But I, I've never really come across a situation where it's like a plus b equals mm. this it's not, not directly yeah but i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure that it would influence people although having said that it's difficult i remember when i worked as a hospital chaplain my job was to work with people who were coming out of long-term care and going into community well there's not really any such a thing as a community in the sense of a safe place where people who are different can go and but I, had to, I had to find a spiritual home for people. And a number of people living with schizophrenia, what they really wanted was a conservative evangelical church because they wanted to have clear parameters about what was right, what was wrong, what was in, mm. who was in, who was out. Uh, and so I would take them to a more liberal church and they would want that because you know, they don't want the question of, well, maybe Jesus is the, the king, maybe Jesus right. is the one saved actually there's a security in mm. in that these conservative views yeah. now to your point it could be that that also becomes problematic at certain points when people are are, mm. are, are unwell and so you you know you may have a difficulty but then you could have that difficulty anywhere but i, I always thought it was quite interesting yeah that's really interesting i mean i've worked just as a volunteer chaplain um through through work as a pastor and other places in in um 
various settings, um, like local mental health care, or even um, like at a forensic institute where people were, you know, in, instead of being sent to prison, um, they're, they're uh. sent to these places that, and on first, actually, uh, one of the people you mentioned in your book, you oh, quote yeah, you quote Tim Fretheim. Yeah, we talked to him last um, year. Tim was a guest on our I podcast. Remember. Yeah, and and he was a chaplain at a, a place called Colony Farms in um, in our area Neck here, of the woods. In yeah. woods. Um, <laughs> and uh, someone that we were working with through through our church when I was pastor was um, was there and had served some time there and such. And and there was a reticence among many of the staff, not the chaplain, but actually no, even the chaplain, uh, when a pastor came in. Right. And it took a while for me to get to, because I think they thought I might be carrying these like, you know, black and white things, like whether it's to, if you just pray, you'll be healed or if, you know, and that many of the struggles that people have in that extreme kind of mental health care, some of the delusions, some of the fixed false beliefs or whatever might be around, uh, might be religious in nature. Right. Yeah. Like I'm sure you've, you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. So much is, you know, this is God or this is the devil. And this is, how do you navigate through that in your own faith? Well, it's the, you mean my own experience? With yeah, the, kind of your own experience and your own faith of like it's a it's a prayerful kind of approach, right? How you how you walk up to somebody and mm. begin and interact. Like I, one of these people that I he told me when I first met him, that one of these kids, oh, that he was he, Jesus. He's Jesus, yeah. Right. He he had come to an evening service that we were running, and and then um, he stayed behind after, scared the crap out of me. It was dark and late, and you know I'm in this like kind of dungeon church office and nobody else is there and I'm feeling terrible because you know not successful or whatever I hear this hello and um, this young man wants to talk with me and and um, and so I say sure and I just want to get it kind of over with and he he says oh I love the service so much it was so great can can do you mind if I tell you some really difficult things I'm like okay you know I just want to go home but um, and he said well I I, th I think you should know I think I'm Jesus Right. And I didn't know, I don't have any training or in, I, this is like, whatever you'd say, the Holy Spirit or, you know, I just thought like, well, what do I, and so I said to him, oh, that's, I said, is it okay if, if I don't think that, like, are we okay to keep, and he's like, yeah, that's fine. And, and so then we, you know, but anyway, so when you, when you kind of talk to somebody and they might be carrying some really religious content in there, how do you try to be present for them? No, I think that, that's a very good question. Like, and it, and it, it's, it's so, it, even more difficult in a situation like that, yours, where you're isolated and where you, you're mm. not quite sure what's going on. Yeah. My, my general sense is that, first of all, I, 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 I think very often delusions can be there for a purpose mm. in, in the sense that they um, form, they can form an identity for somebody who otherwise might be quite hopeless, may not have any real possibilities in life. Uh, and this, the delusion itself can be mm. a positive dimension. Because there's a really interesting story that I, I, I think I tell it in the, in the book, I think. And it talks about a psychiatrist in Philadelphia who in the middle of the night, this guy comes in and says that he's a, he's a prophet. He's been sent by God to be to preach the, the world and to bring about the salvation of the world. But, uh, and she, and it says, this, God's told me this is going to be cause me great pain. And he lifts up his shirt and he's got these big scars on his, on his, on his chest, which clearly are causing big pain because yeah. he's in the uh, end stages of, of HIV AIDS. Uh, so he's, he's, he's a man who's dying and who has created this delusion 
to move beyond that. So the, the dilemma for the psychiatrist was, do I give this guy medication and take him out of his delusion and let him see that he's a homeless oh. man who's dying of AIDS? Or do I listen to him and do I work this out? And it was a real dilemma for her. And the temptation's always mm-hmm. to go to medication, but she didn't do that. Uh, well, she did eventually, but she, the fact that she was asking these questions yeah. indicates something. It's the, it's the, it's the, the, you know, from the perspective of a psychiatrist, to see that is, is really very, very important. In the end, she took him into hospital. He did have medication and he, he was helped with his delusional experience. But I think that the key thing there is that, that just that point is that listening, is yeah. the key. You don't have to say anything. And yeah. You definitely don't want to be confronting people yeah. with who seem to be unorthodox, according to you. Yeah, yeah. Just, you need to be corrected. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the chances are he knows he's not Jesus, but, but, but well, maybe that's not the case. Who am I to say? Yeah, I mean, we, but, we, yeah, we walked with this guy for years. He wound up, unfortunately, he wound up taking his own life um, from from the Lionsgate Bridge um, years later. Um, but he had been on like court ordered medication and stuff for some, for some other things, but he, yeah. he carried this delusion. But what was interesting in, in speaking of our former church, um, the community was fantastic with him. They embraced him. Um, and, and they didn't let this thing, you know, yeah, people key. didn't try to correct and all those other kinds of things. And he was, and it was actually when he, he, the court order ran out on his medication and he had some other things and he went to a different community and, um, yeah. And as these things go, they often end in in kind of sad ways still. But um, but it was it was a uh, it was still a positive story. Not not the end, but in terms of how he was embraced. And uh, so it's really interesting. Yeah. I love what you say about that psychiatrist. Rather than like breaking those things and thinking like I need That's to right. correct this, that can happen That's even right. in in um, long term care settings with someone who's elderly. Yeah. Right. You know, how are you today, so and so? And they're like, well, the train's coming at whatever time, and you don't go. There's no train. <laughs> That's a really good point. Before I, I need to correct myself because I, I said the chances are he, he, he knew he wasn't Jesus. Scrub that. That's nonsense. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I, yeah. <laughs> I, I withdraw that comment and, and I go with, with your... I, I know your, what you're saying, your, though. I know what you're saying. There's that There's that line of like, what did he, what did he actually know of what had been exactly. created? And I that, definitely, that was, that was definitely hear how you're saying it for sure. Yeah. yeah. But the, the issue of elderly people is interesting because one of the things that elderly people do very often is tell the same stories over and over and over again. Yes. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they do. Of, well, I do that, too. That. <laughs> you're, well, you, you're exactly. getting old, Todd. <laughs> <That's right>. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you think about it, uh, you could, well, there's two ways you can think about it. You can think this is just a boring old person who just tells the same right. stories over and over again. Or you can think about, well, why did they do that? Mm-hmm. Why did they tell the same stories about their youth? Why did they tell us about their family and so on and so forth? And one reason might be that that reinforces a, a time in their lives where their identity was sure and certain, yes, where, they had exactly. name, where they had place, where they had status. And so by constantly telling that story, they're able to hold on to their mm-hmm. identity uh, and, and status and value in that, in that situation. And so simply by listening, you actually may be fulfilling. It may, may drive you nuts because you're, you, you know, hearing the same story over and over and over again is a difficult thing to absorb. Yeah. But by absorbing it, you actually free them to be something that may be highly significant for them. I remember feeling that with my grandfather who died when he was 93 and he was someone who didn't experience, you know, great as far as I know, but back in that time, um, mental health crisis through his life or whatever. And But he lost his wife my my nana my grandmother a few years previous and he did really well in the home he lived in he actually you know like 
socially and whatever else he kind of but then in in the last in his last days um he would recall i remember driving with him and it's a small town in southern ontario the last time i saw him alive and he obviously he couldn't remember what he'd had like for his previous meal but his what was in his head was mary that was my grandmother um he st- he had in his head that he was going to see her later that day you know that he was back so what you're saying that secure identity and again i think it's just grace of god or whatever that i thought well why would i break that for him it, that's a better yeah. place for him to be and i can still actually be present for him here and love him yeah. here driving in the car but i don't have to bring him out of that thing so that he can you know sit in the that's room right. in the home right so yeah. it's uh, yeah it's beautiful no i i think that's very that's very interesting and and i think that that people maybe have a little more of a first-hand experience with with something that would be like dementia or akin to a me- dementia than than some yeah. um, other mental health um, challenges. That I think I think that there's there's part where I think most people have an experience of remembering their grandparents telling the same story again yeah. and again, or their parents. And like I think I think of my my mother-in-law who um, her her father died in in their house um of uh liver cancer and she she she's a nurse and did like all of his like end of life care and um then her mother got like she she just started declining after that and the the amount of grace that i watched like my my mother-in-law show with her mom like it was it was just like like it was like christ-like it was it was Uh so beautiful just like the the compassion and the care and and I go, I, I hope that, that I can be that, that nice and that, mm. that loving. And I remember it, it's, it stood out a lot for me because, because you don't always encounter that. And no. it's hard hearing the same stories again and again and again it and is. again and answering. Like, and her mother was at the point when she was nearing the end of her life that like, she could ask the same question 15 times in 15 minutes. And so yeah. I think that there, there's such this call, and, and I think it goes back to you talking about that as humans, um, to be human is to care and to be cared for. And I feel like one of the most beautiful examples I've seen of that is probably my, my mother-in-law and her, and her mom, <laughs> just to see that there, there is something in that where you, you, can't, you can't make that time a commodity. Well, I think that's like, in, you know, John, you've spent lots of time in these settings, um, care homes and other places. And, and as a pastor, when we used to go in um, and do a little service or something, or even if you're visiting someone, or you, I don't think there, was, there were many times where I'm like, oh, great, I get to go to the, to the care home today. and do, But, you know, not to romanticize it too much, but virtually every time I left, I felt, I'm so grateful for that. And I think it's back to what you're saying, about what we can discover of our humanity yeah. in these cool. kinds of places. But speaking of the same stories over and over again, before we close our time, um, I wanted to uh, ask about the Bible, the same stories over and over again. Um, in your, in your, um, you offer some, some helpful uh, considerations on the Bible and mental health. And, and in some of what I read, I can't remember where it was. I think it's recent writing. Oh, it was the essay in, in the collection. Um, you talk about how some things in the Bible can be very problematic for people with particular mental health challenges. Um, so tell us about that, what, what you mean there. Yeah, well, I mean, the Bible is always uh, 
we're always interpreting the Bible, and, and to some extent, we interpret it according to the way we're taught, and to, also in terms of the way we're feeling it. Uh, anybody who's opened up the Bible and uh, feeling sad, and you'll always find something sad there, or yeah. feeling joyful, you'll find that God's on your side. <laughs> but if you have a, a, you know, a significant uh, uh, mental health challenge, and say you're going through a, a deep depression, you'll read scripture in, in quite particular ways. And so mm -hmm. Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my only companion. Normally we would say, well, that's quite a helpful thing because even the psalmist understands darkness and understands that God is there in the midst of darkness because it's a prayer. Whereas if you're you know, going through the major depression, you may just think, I think God's telling me that mm -hmm. this is it. This is the end here. Uh, and so you've got to be very careful, I think, with the way that you help people to, to read the scriptures. And sometimes... I mean, the, the whole point of the Bible is to help us to love God more fully and to love one another, including ourselves, as Jesus says, uh, 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 properly in, in, the, in the way that God wants us to do. Uh, and so when, because of the, our psychological state, it starts to function in the exact opposite way, then we're best to seek help from your mm. pastor to read it properly or to put the Bible down for a yeah. little while and allow other people to help you to, you know, with, with passages from scripture, not to, in any sense, bypassing the Bible, but just recognizing that the purpose of the Bible is to enhance love. And mm. if it starts functioning differently because of your psychological state, then you mm. need to take appropriate action. No, I, I think that's very wise. I think that that maybe hasn't been said enough that sometimes you, you just need to put it down for a little bit. Yeah, not the thing in, in evangelical settings that said a lot, you know. You probably, no, you know what you but, should do. but I feel like that that's that's um yeah, there there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um as as we as we uh begin wrapping up here, John, can you tell me what makes you hopeful about faith uh, about the church or one or the other um right now? Well, I'm hopeful because God's faithful. And I think what mm -hmm. I've seen, what the, pa the pandemic really teaches us is how interdependent we are mm -hmm. and how despite the proclamations of world domination that we had, actually it takes a tiny little virus to destroy all of that. Like. Yeah. And so I think that that's, if we, if we read that properly and recognize the significance of that for the way that we relate to one another and relate to the environment. And it's quite miraculous the way that the environment was healed during the first life lockdown. Right. Just simply by people not stepping in planes or not throwing <laughs> things in the water. So I'm hopeful if we get the lessons to be learned. But ultimately, I'm hopeful because God's in control. Yeah. And uh, I fully believe that to be the case, uh, even though at points it doesn't look that way. So, um, yeah, I think there's lots to be hopeful. I think, for. you know, it's it's so great hearing this from you, even even people who don't know you, and we don't know you well, we know <laughs> you mostly through your work, but um, to know that, you know, carrying that hope in many of the places in which you've worked, some of the places you've worked have been places where people would least like to be, or they would think, if I ever wind up in that place, that's that's the darkness, yeah. right? Um, and to And to carry that hope... Uh, both in terms of hope regarding faith, the the belief that God is God is sovereign, um, but then the interdependence as a gift that that our interdependence on one another is not is yeah. not burden but gift, and we discover our humanity in that. So I think that's one of the reasons we um, we see so much in your writing. We resonate with yeah. so much of how you speak. 
Um, we're really looking forward to the course. I am really looking forward <laughs> to it. Yeah, um, we'll, we have all the books already and everything yep. else. We we do recommend to listeners, like, track this down, vst.edu or regent-college.edu to find mm-hmm. out where Professor Swinton is um, speaking and teaching. It's easy to sign up for yeah. these things. You even won't, if you won't regret lectures. it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and this way of thinking is is helpful uh, right across the board. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking thank the you. time with us uh, yeah, this evening or this afternoon where you are, this morning for us. And we do look forward to seeing you in person. Yes. Um, One way or the other. It's going to be We're fantastic. We're happy to come your yeah. way. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank God you bless. so much. Yeah.